0: In the United States, a rare disease is one that affects 200,000 people or fewer. Another statistic is about half are children, and 30% of those children will die by the age of five. But rare diseases are hardly rare. One in 10 people in the United States has one. And yet only 5% of these 7,000 rare diseases have an FDA-approved therapy. But there's hope, and you'll soon learn why. See many of these rare diseases share similar cellular and genetic defects to other diseases where there is isn't approved therapy. In other words the lives of people being impacted or worse the lives lost including children could be saved and helped by a drug that exists today. A drug that could be sitting on the shelf of a local pharmacy. My guest today is Dr. David Fagenbaum and he can discuss rare diseases and why there might be a potential drug that already exists. And you can discuss it from three points of view. First is a doctor. Second is an advocate. And third, and I think most importantly, is a patient. I was
1: experiencing multiple organ system failure. My liver, my kidneys, my bone marrow, my heart, and my lungs were shutting down
0: for an unknown cause. Dr. Fagenbaum has a rare disease called Cattleman disease. And it's not one that you want to get. Five times he's been in the hospital with his organs failing and one time lying on his bed surrounded by family as a priest read him his last rites.
2: You're listening to the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network, and this is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC.
0: But he's here today because he's a groundbreaking physician, scientist, he's a disease hunter, he's a speaker, and he's author of the national best-selling memoir, Chasing My Cure, A Doctor's Race to Turn Hope into Action. He is eight years in remission, married and the father of two beautiful children, and the world is much more beautiful because of him. Dr. Fagenbaum, welcome to Chat of the Matters.
1: Tony, thanks so much for having me. That was was beautiful, thank you.
0: Before we get to your rare disease and how you're celebrating eight years in remission and this incredible journey, I wanna first just sort of establish your backstory. From what I understand, you grew up in Raleigh, North Carolina, born March 29th, 1985 to a physician father and a stay-at-home mother. Tell me a little bit about life back then.
1: Well, growing up back then, um, just as you said, I had uh, this incredible mom who was my friend and resource and support system. My dad, who was a role model and was kind of always um, pushing me to to continue to, to work harder and harder. Um, at the time, the thing that I was working harder and harder on was training to play american football i had this lifelong dream that i wanted to play american football in college here in the states and um that's all i could think about when i was a kid was you know i wanted to to get in better better shape so i could play college football and along the way um, i learned a lot from both of my parents about the importance of hard work and in particular for my
0: mom about the importance of helping people in need people can't see you because this is a podcast but when I look at an early picture of you training to be this sort of college football, maybe a professional football player, you look like a young Harry Connick Jr., but ripped. Now, I can say that because I've had Harry Connick Jr. on my show, but you're in spectacular shape, and you do get recruited to play college football. Now, just taking a guess, because I couldn't find this in my research, given your size and shape, I am thinking you're a cornerback. I, I was a quarterback, actually.
1: I'm just, wow. Yeah,
0: despite, uh,
1: I was I was on, on the bigger side for quarterback, but yeah, I, was, I played quarterback.
0: You go off to university and you're studying and when you're there your mom calls you with some bad news what did she tell you
1: yeah i learned that she had brain cancer a incurable and, and really aggressive form of brain cancer and of course the first thing i did was was head home i'd only been in, at college for a few weeks at that time
0: my mom died of a very aggressive cancer as well and i remember i was in toronto she lived in montreal and i went home to see her and i remember like it was yesterday sitting on the side of her bed and i I can picture what she was wearing the smells in the room which was so different because of the medicines and stuff and her last conversation with me do you have that kind of recall like what would your mom who's your best friend have talked to you about then because i'm curious to see if there's some similarities i remember that last
1: conversation so well i'm actually um getting some goosebumps thinking about it. Cause every feeling, every sense, um, I can remember, I think part of the reason that you and I probably remember it so well is that I remember in the moment thinking to myself, I, I want this moment to last forever. And I guess in a way, um, that moment is lasting forever because you and I can still feel it. So thank you for for, for bringing back that memory because it's a powerful and a tough memory. But it was two weeks before she passed away because the brain tumor was growing in her brain. She had very limited speech, so there weren't many, many words that she could say. Um, but she communicated to me that... Um, she was worried about how I would be after she was gone. And it was the first time we spoke about the idea that she she may not beat this thing. You know, we kept saying, you know, you're going to beat brain cancer. And um, it was so sad to see her afraid um, for, you know, she wouldn't be there to protect her son. And, and I promised her, I said, mom, I'm going to be okay. And I'm going to start something in your memory for other kids like me. And I'm going to call it AMF. And I, I had no idea what I was telling her I would do, but I felt this need to to keep her life going on she was this amazingly supportive person so could i create something and name it after her her name was Anne Marie fagenbaum her initials AMF could i create something to embody her her life and so um uh, unfortunately she passed away um two weeks later and having that be my last conversation with her that drove me to want to start an organization in her memory um, and that actually still is is going on today um, and helping college students all over the country
0: and amf stands now for it's actively moving forward right That's right, actively moving forward. And and what's the intent of it? I can know you taking the legacy and saying that I'm going to be okay and I'm going to do something in your memory, but what are you hoping is happening in college campuses throughout the United
1: States the primary thing that AMF does is it connects college students coping with the illness or death of a loved one to support one another. So, um, you talked earlier about rare disease and how we don't realize that one in ten Americans have a rare disease. Um, they're kind of they're they're called orphan diseases because in many ways they're neglected. Well, college student grief is another sort of neglected issue where people don't really talk about the fact that they've lost a loved one in college. Because when you're at college, you're supposed to be having the time of your life, and you know everything should be should be rosy and no one really talks about that they have a deceased parent or that someone they love is sick and so amf is about connecting those people um, to support one another and then also to get involved in community
0: service in memory of the of the family member that's sick or deceased and it's always amazing and the, the similarities we'll share with our mothers is how they were so concerned about how are we going to cope yes. and what are we going to do next 100 when they're on their deathbed. and I, I always look at that as saying that lesson in servitude that humility is something that, uh, you know, if you could gift to every human on this planet, we'd be so much better as a human race. Is that what your mom um, was, was talking to you about during that conversation? Yeah. She just said, I want you to carry on. You're now the, my dad had bipolar and he was manic depressive. So you've got to carry this family on. You've got to keep things together. you got to look after your sisters. And I, I walked away, I, now I'm getting goosebumps, just uh, just marveling at her courage. Did it change your career path? Because this person has had looking to be, you know, this college player and and such. You you suddenly start fast tracking a lot of education pointing towards medicine. Was part of that due to your mom and her illness? 100%. I mean, it it brought my life to almost a screeching
1: halt and it made me reevaluate everything. I mean, all of a sudden, whether or not we won a football game meant so little, at least to me, compared to... My mom has this deadly illness, and by the way, there are thousands of other diseases out there that also are waiting for solutions. And and incredible people like my mom, who are dying um, from conditions that that maybe maybe there's a solution for them. And so that made me say, well, what if instead of spending all this time, all day, every day, training to you know improve my football skills, which you know have a questionable impact at all in in the world, um, uh, what if I put all that time and effort towards something that maybe could help someone like my mom?
0: And you seem to have no limit to your intellectual capacity or capability. If I've got this right, you get your bachelor's of science from Georgetown University, master's of science from the University of Oxford, an MD from the Perelman School of Medicine, and an MBA from the Wharton School of Business. <laughs> Incredible what's in your knapsack. And I'm going to come back a little bit in terms of that intellectual pursuit and how it leads to such breakthroughs that you're not only for your own disease but for others but before i get into that i also want to talk a little bit about your high school sweetheart caitlin because she comes through this story a couple of times You met in high school
1: not not exactly right we knew of each other in high school
0: but we never actually met in high school you're the good-looking quarterback at the high school what was her role because you know if you if you look at greece and you look at some of those movies it's always (laughs) the quarterback so i'm
1: two years older than caitlin so though we went to the same high school i actually literally never met her even once it wasn't until my senior year of college when i i I came back to the area and she went to college um in, in the raleigh area we met each other, uh, ran into each other at a bar and kind of pretended like we had you know, known each other since high school when really we were meeting each other for
0: the first time.
2: You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC.
0: My guest today is Dr. David Fagenbaum, known by his friends as The Beast. He went from being a fit young man, champion weightlifter, college quarterback, to fighting a rare disease that nearly killed him five times. David, take us back to 2010, your third year studying medicine, and you start not to feel right. Well, we've all not felt right, but just give us context of what started something little and what did it become. That's right. At first it was, I just felt
1: really, really tired. And and just as you said, we've all felt tired before. And as a medical student, I felt tired a lot. So it was, you know, what is it about this? Why was I so concerned? It was a fatigue I had never felt before. It was, I was so exhausted. I started having this like impending sense of doom. I actually said something to one of my best friends. I said, I I think I'm dying. And he he was like, what do you mean you think you're dying? And I said, well, I just, I feel so fatigued and I've got this abdominal pain and and something really bad is happening.
0: And what was happening to your body during all this time? Because the way I understand it, you're starting to see, it wasn't just happening inside. You're feeling tired. You're starting to see physical changes almost. And the way it's described is almost like you're a character in a Marvel comic book. I think that in many ways, the way I went from
1: being so healthy as a medical student, former college athlete, to becoming so sick so quickly—in many ways, it, it almost feels like you know, traumatized, like a Marvel comic. But it, I, I can tell you, at the time, um, it was just just frightening. Um, externally, um, the fatigue turned into fluid accumulation. I started noticing fluid pooling around my ankles. Um, I didn't know what it was at the time, but felt fluid pooling around my lungs and in my abdomen um, i could see these um, blood moles uh, like little balls of blood vessels kind of popping up on my chest and my shoulders this kind of constellation of symptoms was just terrifying
0: you go into the hospital things get worse when they start saying hey your organs are shutting down how do you really relate at your age where you think you're immortal that you've got this this runway ahead of you that's going to be endless you know i know you've got the pain of your mom but at the same time you're young and fit and suddenly they're saying words like organs shutting down. pretty serious. It was really
1: serious. And as a medical student, I I knew how serious it was because a doctor would mention one laboratory test or another. And they were numbers that I actually had, had never seen outside of people in the intensive care unit. And even in the ICU, they were levels that, were, that would have been very concerning for me. Um, I guess at that stage, my liver and my kidneys uh, were failing so badly that I started getting very confused. And I couldn't really even understand what was happening anymore because your kidneys filter out your blood and so if they stop working you get very confused and in many ways that probably was a good thing because it meant that i went from like kind of trying to figure out what was going on to almost just being unconscious for most of the
0: day and seven weeks later you kind of walk out of this hospital miraculously feeling better nobody knows what's really wrong with you divine intervention but from what I understand you weren't buying it. You needed to know more about what went on because life just doesn't happen that way. You go from being a fit quarterback body to, to the point where you can't even figure out where you are seven weeks later. You're
1: right. I I just got better. And it was like, what was that? And I remember one doctor in the ICU, I said, you know, what do you think it was? He said, well, I don't know what it was, but if it's something serious, it's going to come back. And that sort of concept really stuck with me. And I said, well, wait a minute, you know, I need to do what I can to be prepared for whatever that is. You know, Maybe I can find some pattern in my medical records. Maybe there's some testing that could be done to figure out what it is before it comes back um, because it was so intense. I mean, I, I nearly died that first time. I said goodbye to my family. Uh, and of course, I, I didn't know just how many more times it would come back.
0: And that sledgehammer comes back pretty quick. I mean, even before you can really start diving into your medical records, it's not that long after you walk out that you're back in hospital. That's right, it was just a few weeks
1: and I was right back in and um, I got just as sick as before, maybe even more rapidly than before. And it was this time, the second time, that um, the doctors said, we don't have a diagnosis and and you're getting so sick so quickly. And that's when a priest came into my room and and read my last rites to me because my family um,
0: and and my doctors didn't think I was going to survive. Were you lucid enough to understand what last rites were? Did you realize that this might be when you closed your eyes the last time you would see them?
1: Somewhat, I was um, I was certainly getting confused because my organs weren't working and I was very 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 sick. Um, but I do have a couple of vague memories of saying goodbye to my family, somewhat getting a, my head around what that meant, and I, and I do remember the priest coming in my room. I, I don't remember what he said.
0: I do remember getting a sense of, of what that meant. That must be so etched in your brain that, you know, I always say that people that have had a near death experience, the one gift they're given is that they value time. They value life. They value every second where many of us might go through life thinking it's a dress rehearsal before it's too late. I like to
1: think about this concept in terms of a, of a sports analogy. So of course, you know, over time, it's time that in a sporting event that you didn't think you'd have, um, but in overtime five minutes of overtime um, requires the intensity and the focus of almost an entire game because, you know, any wrong move and, and the game's over. And that is how I feel right now. It's that at 25 years old, I was clued in to, to just how fragile life is and just how special it is. You know, when, when you think you're losing it is when you just value it to such a level. And so I want to make the most of every second. And, and I don't want to, sometimes when you think that way, that can make you feel, afraid or pressured to make the right decision over the wrong. But it really, for me, it liberated me to say, okay, my clock is ticking down. I don't know how much time is on the clock, but boy, am I going to make the most of every second.
0: You find out that you have this rare disease called Castleman, and then you Google it you almost feel like throwing up because what you google is not something anybody wants to hear they have
1: that's right it happened to be one of the first times in about three months that i was by myself my, my dad and my sisters did not leave my side i mean it was incredible my dad slept in the hospital room beside me every night for it turned out to be almost six months total but when i googled it i, I found this statistic that just terrified me and that was that 16 percent of patients diagnosed with my disease were alive two years after diagnosis. Unfortunately, for many rare diseases, that's the answer that you get when you get diagnosed with a rare disease, that very little is known and that the outcomes are really bad. And it's not always just because the disease is really bad. In many cases, the outcomes are really bad because medical science hasn't mobilized the resources and the answers to be able to treat
0: patients. Is that because... It's not big enough business. I don't want to be crass, but when you talk about less than 200,000 people, they're going, we're better to put our research dollars towards something where we can sell a lot of drugs. I think so. I think there's one part of it that's financial. I think there are
1: some other parts of it that aren't financial. It's hard to find patients because, you know, we're rare and scattered. So if you want to do research, it's not that easy. There's oftentimes, uh, less scientific interest because yeah i mean scientists like myself we you know we dream of curing and saving as many people as possible and so the idea of focusing on a small disease will you know by definition mean that if you cure or treat the disease it's going to be it's going to affect a smaller number of people
0: i want to weave this love story in because caitlin's not in the picture at this time why you know we had dated for a couple years before i got sick
1: and um a few months before um i got sick caitlin broke up with me and um when she broke up with me, part of it was that I tend to really hyper focus on things and to put kind of my everything into them. And so, anyway, at the time, I was really hyper focusing on medical school training and also on growing AMF. And I, and I, frankly and objectively, was not giving Caitlin um, the time, and the attention she deserved. And so, she rightfully so broke up with me. But, um, but I didn't fight for our relationship. And the reason I didn't is because I knew we had something really special, and I thought that you know maybe uh, we would end up together but i just thought to myself if it's meant to be it's meant to be i'm 25 years old we've got all the time in the world all of a sudden i became so sick and that also i think made Caitlin realize we didn't have all the time in the world so as you know from reading the book she she started trying to come to see me um, in the hospital twice. I asked my sister to not let Caitlin into the, into the room. I, I, I wasn't ready um, emotionally and mentally for the conversation that I wanted to have with her. I wanted to be able to tell her how I felt. I wanted her to have that. I wanted to have that sort of, you know, final conversation where I, I like the one that you and I remember with our mom, where it was like, where we said the things we wanted to say. And frankly, I think I was also just, just, sad and afraid, and um, so I pushed her away. But um, there was an element of pride where it was, okay, up until now I've always been this really fit, person and you know caitlin fell in love with this you know this person who looked one way i think that that was wrong of me to presume that the superficial meant something in particular to caitlin and caitlin proved to me that that was totally incorrect and
0: that i made the completely wrong assumption i'm glad she came back for the third time (laughs) me too Hi, this is Tony Chapman. You're listening to Chatter That Matters. Download this episode wherever you get your podcasts. we come back, Dr. Fagenbaum heads off to Arizona and starts to see a light at the end of the tunnel. Hi, it's Tony Chapman and a big thank you to RBC for sponsoring Chatter That Matters. Speaking of matters, I have a question for you. You check in on your family, your health, even your car. When was the last time you did a check-in on your finances? Well, RBC Check-In is a virtual experience with no obligation. I got answers to all of my money questions, big and small, and I now have a plan for my future. Book a check in at rbc.com check in.
1: Around that time, after 11 weeks in the intensive care unit, my doctors encouraged my family to say their final goodbyes and my family brought in a priest to administer my last rites to me. I've considered that moment when I had my last rites read to me to be the start of my overtime. A time that I didn't think I would have, but a time where every single second counts.
2: You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Welcome back to
0: Chatter That Matters. i one of the most courageous people I've ever interviewed. Five times he's been on the deathbed. But when read his last rites, he never gives up hope. My guest today is Dr. David Fagenbaum. Before we go to your trip to Arizona, you're at the hospital at Duke University, and you see a sign—a sign that you last saw when your mother was being treated for brain cancer. There, what was the sign? It's a sign that says, "At Duke, there
1: is hope." When I saw it when I was going to see my mom uh, during her brain surgery, I did think to myself, "Okay, we're at the the best place in the world for this, and like you know, they're going to figure this out for her." And so when I saw it the second time, and now I was the patient, and they hadn't figured it out for my mom, right? You know, she, she lived for about a year after her diagnosis. It made me kind of question that sort of full-fledged hope that you can kind of give to something um, uh, where you just say, yes, like we're in the right place. They're going to take care of it. It made, made me really question that philosophy.
0: And you're in hospital and medicine's answer is just to keep nuking you with chemotherapy. And you're saying there's got to be something else because eventually chemotherapy is just going to destroy me, maybe even before the disease does. And you find out that there's someone, Dr. Fritz Van Rie, I believe is his name, a national expert on Castleman disease. And he agrees to see you. And on the way to his office, I think the taxi driver decides that he's going to diagnose you. And you go, how is that possible that this guy driving my car knows that I have this disease? How did that all come about? Yeah, so it was. It was. You're
1: right. It was a shuttle driver um, for the hotel that I, I was staying at with my dad in, in Little Rock, Arkansas. And he said, "You have Castleman's, right?" And I said, "What?" I, I, you know, I literally spent weeks hospitalized at the University of Pennsylvania, at Duke University, some of the best hospitals in the world, and no one could diagnose me. And the, the shuttle driver in Little Rock, Arkansas, just could see and in part it was because of how much fluid I had everywhere. I'd gained about 70 pounds of fluid because my organs weren't working and my liver and kidneys weren't. And um, so, this t- this shuttle driver just immediately recognized, you know, right off the bat. And um, and yeah, I said, you're right, I have, I have Castleman disease. It's
0: this, you know, rare immune system disorder. So you go to this doctor. He prescribes this promising drug, but it's clinical trial. And you're kind of become this human petri dish and say, you know what? I'll take it. Mm-hmm. How tough was it to make that decision? Was it just like, you know, in football, they call it Hail Mary. I had no choice, but just throw that up. Or was it, did you think there was enough science behind it that was worth the risk? It was a total Hail Mary. It was, you know, I had no other choices. And
1: then frankly, there was also reason to be hopeful. I mean, there were, my doctor and my um, nurses were telling me about other patients that got that experimental drug and how it just turned things around. And actually, I met one of those patients when I was in the hospital. He came by to see me. He had spent months hospitalized and most of the time in the ICU, he had had part of his uh, colon resected because all these problems, he had had strokes that made him partially blind. He he really had a tough uh, road And and all of a sudden I'm like laying in the hospital bed. I'm the one who's in critical condition. I'm looking up. And I'm hearing from him about what he went through and he's standing up, he's looking healthy. And when you're sick like that, and and for me, I would see people like stand up and walk and I would just dream about that. Like, oh my gosh, like, wouldn't it be amazing if I had the
0: physical ability and the energy to just walk? And so it starts to work on you, but it's not, it's not the permanent cure you're hoping for though, is it? That's
1: right. We, We still don't even really know how much it helped me because- I started to get it and then I, I i was getting worse and we felt that we didn't have the patience. We couldn't wait to see, you know, if it, would work on its own. So I got a, a load of chemotherapy, seven different chemotherapies combined at once, highest possible doses, just completely obliterated um, my Castleman disease. Castleman's is a disease of the immune system, where basically your immune system attacks all of your vital organs for an unknown cause. And so, one way to stop it is just to nuke the whole immune system. And so, so we did that. Um, and what that meant is that we didn't really know if the experimental drug was doing anything because we gave this like targeted experimental drug, and we also dropped a nuke. At at the same time. And so you, you know, was it just the nuke or was or did the targeted drug help? But I of course I hoped that it would help and it would end
0: up becoming a kind of a test of time. Did it come back or not? And an important date shows up. I mean this is 2012, I believe, but you and Caitlin decide that you're going to get married. How important was that to you to have a desired outcome, an end game, a rung to sort of reach for when you're still struggling with you know having a nuclear immune system just to stay alive there was one relapse that occurred
1: between um me getting out of the hospital that first time and then getting engaged and when i relapsed now really with Caitlin by my side um it just reaffirmed um how i felt about her and it also um reaffirmed the concern that i had which is that i was worried about you know bringing her into this life of hospitalizations and relapses and chemo and You know, she's an amazing person and deserves every opportunity in life. And and I remember I asked her about that, you know, are you sure you, you want to, you want to date me? I mean, look at what I've become, look at what I am, you know, likely going to put you through. And she just, she looked at me with this like kind of surprise, but also kind of like annoyed look, like, yeah of course I want to do that like i'm like i'm like I'm annoyed you're even questioning that i want to, want to do that, and so that was kind of all I needed to h- hear and then when I relapsed again um a, a few months thereafter, when i started started to get better, I, I just knew I wanted to to get married to her, and I didn't know when the next relapse would be. I didn't know how much longer I had but but that just felt like such an important thing for both of us. You know we didn't know how much time we would have after we got married, but I wanted to do it for sure.
0: What advice can you give to others who are dealing with challenging circumstances? Yours obviously is one of life and death to really have something that's much more of an emotional goal versus just a physical goal or a number or metric or my data or my blood work to really to put something out there that fills your heart as much as it fills anything other part of your body. Oh, it's such a good question.
1: I mean, I think that the only reason I'm here today, people often ask, you know, where did you find the strength? And, and, and I immediately uh, think to myself, I certainly didn't have it myself. The, the Where I found the strength was the people around me that I love. So it was the Caitlin's and my dad and my sisters and my best friends, Ben, these people, they gave me the strength. You know, as I was really struggling, it was, I'm going to lean on them. I'm going to get motivation, get motivation energy i'm gonna lean on them during this tough time and then i'm gonna dream of a future where i'm with those people but nothing could drive me to want to get better than that that vision for a future with the people that i loved that was kind of my formula was to you know lean into the people you love when you're really having a hard time dream of the future with them and then take it one step at a time. And so one step at a time for me literally meant that when I was in the hospital, I needed to get up and make sure that I was walking. Because when you're in the ICU or when you're you know bedridden for a long time, bad things happen if you're not you know, physically moving every once in a while. And so uh, it was the people I loved who gave me
0: that, that strength. As you're going through this and being carpet-bombed with chemotherapy, you start really thinking that and what I understand, there's 1,500 drugs that have been invented that are FDA approved. Is it possible that one of those that was intended for something else could possibly help you? You know, it was so interesting because one
1: day I realized, wait a minute, the chemotherapy that I'm getting that's saving my life, it wasn't developed for Castleman disease. It was developed for a number of cancers, including lymphoma. And someone said, well, we've got nothing else for these Castleman's patients. So let's try that l- lymphoma chemotherapy. Wait a minute. Maybe there are some. Uh, there are other drugs out there other than chemo too. You know, what if one of those other drugs could actually be helpful for Castleman disease? And and frankly, there were no other options for me because that drug, the experimental drug we were so hopeful about, it didn't work. I relapsed on that drug. I actually relapsed twice on that drug. So um, we knew that wasn't working, and we knew there were no other drugs in development. So it became this realization that I had no other options. My only option. Um, for survival would be to find something some drug that was approved for something else and hoping that it would work for my disease and and if there wasn't another drug at least looking there's no guarantee that there was going to be a drug but i really did feel that i had to do everything i could to see if maybe there could be something else that could save me it's been 69.94 months since my last relapse But I know that I can't round up. I don't know if I'm going to relapse tomorrow, and I don't know if I'm going to be able to make it to 70 months. But I also refuse to round down because my colleagues and I worked really hard for that 0.94 months, and we're continuing to work hard for other patients just like
0: me.
2: You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC.
0: Welcome back to Chatter That Matters. My special guest is Dr. David Fagenbaum. You know, I I used to love the television show House because he would he would be dealing with all these complex issues and, you know, off the spectrum and then come in and connect the dots. And, you know, in 45 minutes, just about anything could be cured. But how hard was that quest of yours and to keep at it with a positive attitude? Because I have to imagine that you turned over a lot of drugs that you thought might be promising and weren't. So how, how do you keep going in that kind of situation? it it, knowing that you might be just looking for a needle in a haystack. You also might be looking through a haystack where there is no needle. That's
1: like the definition of not having hope, right? Is that you're trying to work on something, but you have no hope. It's not there. Um, And so trying to have hope that maybe it's there. And even if it's not there, it's worth the search and it's worth the energy. That was actually really, really hard. And it was a really tough decision because here I am. It's either, it's either I work all day, every day in the laboratory and running computational analyses to try to find a drug for me. Or I spend all day, every day with the people I love, with Caitlin, with my dad, with my sisters, knowing that I had a very short amount of time. And for me, I went back and forth, but I I made the decision. It was, I'm going to put that time into trying to find a drug because if I find something then I'm not just going to only have a few months with the people I love, I might have a few years with those people. Who knows what could come from it? Fortunately, I'm I'm here today. Um, We're talking because
0: um, because I was able to find a drug. You find this drug. Listen to a video saying you know you took this first three pills and nothing happened. You were kind of like you know (laughs) like I can imagine like you know. But when did you start knowing that this was it? So I was excited by the possibilities of it, but I was still you know,
1: cautiously optimistic. It was within a few days of beginning to take the medication that I, I noticed some of my symptoms improving. I noticed some of my blood work improving, but I wasn't ready to say it's working. And all of a sudden I made it to our wedding day. I made it to May 24th, 2014. And it was like, Oh my gosh! With a head of hair, I, my hair—well, it wasn't totally a head of hair, but it certainly was. A, I had a little hair on on my wedding day, which is all I wanted. I just wanted to have some evidence of of hair, um, so that way, um, you know, it it wouldn't be such a reminder to Caitlin of what I'd gone through and what I would likely put her through. All of a sudden, we made it a year that I'd been on this medication, and it was like, oh my gosh, this is incredible. And then it was, you know, fifteen months and two years, and and I, I'm not I'm not exaggerating when I I literally tell you that every day feels like, oh my gosh, like it's another day. This is incredible. Um, and it's not just that it's been a little bit over eight years. It's been eight years and 21 days today. And and tomorrow will be eight years and 22 days. And, and it's, trust me, it, it's, for me, it, it If I could measure it in hours, I
0: would, Um, but it's just the the feeling of every day is just incredible. And one of the things that you came upon in this journey is instead of you just being the one looking for a needle in haystack, you said, if I could bring people together, if I could bring like-minded people together and crowdsource intellectual capital, financial capital, emotional capital we would stand a better chance. Is that the future of medicine that we start really working better together on some of these problems? Absolutely. And and yeah, you and I really didn't talk about
1: a lot of the the ingredients that went into that discovery, but a really essential aspect is that when I started doing research, I knew that there was no way i would be able to do it on my own and so i created an organization called the castleman disease collaborative network with the goal of connecting people from around the world and rather than us all doing our own things individually and all of us applying for the same grants and competing with one another what if we all came together to identify what research should be done and maybe even brought people in from outside of our medical field to do research if they were the best people to do it it was really a simple but fundamental change to go from Kind of hoping the right researcher applies for the right grant at the right time to a world where we all throw in ideas to figure out what should be done, and then we all vote on ideas to figure out the prioritized order, and then we do the work from there. And, and it's really been a, a game changer. And I do think that that's the future of of medicine and science is is what's called team science, where we're where we're all. You know, throwing our information and our ideas in and and we're moving things forward. The other really important takeaway is this idea of drug repurposing, that this drug was just, you know, sitting on a shelf. It was at my neighborhood pharmacy for all the years that I was in and out of the hospital, but no one had ever thought to try it for Castleman's because no, no one had ever discovered that link. As you know, my, my book's called Chasing My Cure, but really we should have called it Chasing Our Cures because the moment that that drug started working for me, I can promise you, Tony, all I started thinking about was how many more are there out there? I mean, this drug literally, you know, I owe the universe, I owe a debt that I'll never be able to pay off, that there was a drug that was already out there that saved my life. But I also feel like the only way to even come close to paying it off is if I can
0: be a part of trying to figure out how many more of these are sitting out there. Do you feel your mom's looking down on you? And if so, which, what's she thinking when she looks at her son that she said, are you going to be okay coping and carrying on?
1: My mom infused so many aspects of who she was into me. I learned so much from her and and I see my mom and my sisters. I see my mom and my dad. Um, I get to hear about how my mom's legacy continues through AMF. I mean, literally there are college students who are supporting one another on college campuses all over the place. And they have no idea that the reason, I mean, the true reason that they're actually getting support or giving support to one another and they're getting through a really tough time is because of my mom's life.
0: I always end my, my shows with the three things that I've learned. And the first one is something I think we both learned from our moms in this sense of humility and servitude that, you know, even on their deathbeds, they, they were so concerned about us and what we would do with our life. And I do believe your mom's looking down and saying, yeah, you're still pretty hyper-focused, but boy, are you making a difference to this planet. The second thing is this sense of overtime. Five minutes of overtime requires the same effort as the game that happened before. And I think if we approached life more like overtime, even if Caitlin had only had a week with you or a year, let alone this wonderful life you're building, you probably gave her more in that time than most give in their entire life because Life is that important to you. And that's a great lesson, I think, for all of us. And the final word that comes through is this word of hope, where there's times where I'm sure you lost it. There's times where you didn't believe it when it was a sign in the hospital because it let your mom down. But I think it's what carries you forward. And that that hope now is your hope that you're going to be able to repurpose some of these drugs. You're going to be able to apply team science so that other people that might be looking up in their deathbed are going to see someone standing there saying, hey, I tried this drug. It wasn't intended for it. And I'm walking because of it. And because of that, everything that's happened to you, I think has been for a, 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 an important reason. And that's to make sure that uh, so many more people have a shot. I, I love those messages and, and they they really resonate so much with me. And that
1: last one around hope, Um, as, as you know, I'm a, a big fan of saying, Let's reflect on what we're hoping for. Let's hope, let's dream, but let's make sure that we're taking action that's inspired by that hope. Sometimes uh, you could be like I was with my mom where I was hopeful that they would figure it out, but I I wasn't taking action. Or you can say, I am so hopeful that this thing will happen. I'm going to do anything in my power. I'm going to do anything I can today, tomorrow, and the next day to get closer to that, which I'm hoping. And um, recognizing that you're not guaranteed anything, but knowing that um, that if you're going to hope for it, and if you're going to pray for it, and if you're going to wish for it, um, that you should take action to try to make that happen.
0: Joining me now is Flora Doe. She's the VP of RBC Healthcare. Flora, uh, welcome to Chat of That Matters.
3: Thanks, Tony. Great to be with you.
0: I have to believe having healthcare in your title, you're being quite busy given all the change that's going on in this sector, especially in the last couple of years.
3: You know, it's fantastic to hear all the stories and learnings come out of the healthcare sector. Obviously healthcare affects every Canadian, every member of society. So it's a very rewarding and challenging role. What
0: role would an organization like RBC play in helping to facilitate and help the industry get to where it needs to go?
3: Yeah, at RBC Healthcare, we're really focused on supporting the financial wellness of healthcare practitioners in their personal and their professional lives. And we know that simplifying financial management for healthcare practitioners in their work and in their personal planning helps them to focus on what matters most, delivery of high quality healthcare for every Canadian. So understanding the challenges of healthcare professionals as they practice their chosen vocation, as they operate their business day to day, many without any formal business training, We're really focused on providing practice management solutions that are digitally enabled. So we're committed to educate, equip, and enable the healthcare business owners with knowledge and insights designed to support the management of their business and give them back time to put towards patient care.
0: Well, I read a little bit about what you were doing to support frontline healthcare workers right in the middle of pandemic.
3: Yeah, thanks, Tony. Near the onset of the pandemic, we stood up a program called the RBC Helping Hands program. And knowing how the lives of critical frontline workers were so disrupted, uh, especially at the onset of the pandemic, we really wanted to say thank you by launching the Helping Hands program, which provided essential workers with the services and support they needed to do their jobs stay healthy and care for their own families. So in collaboration with local restaurants, food services companies, and hotels, RBC delivered prepared meals and essential groceries and provided overnight hotel accommodation to hospital workers in communities across Canada that were among the hardest hit by the pandemic.
0: Florida, I can understand why you are so passionate because health means the world to all of us. And I wanna thank you for joining Chatter That Matters.
2: Thanks so much, Tony. Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman has been a presentation of RBC. Fridays, join Tony Chapman for Chatter That Matters on the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network. It's
0: Tony Chapman. Let's chat soon.